Oh, you guys, you guys must be as excited as I am this morning. I don't think I heard congratulations, Pastor Dustin, as often as I did today, as opposed to the day that I got married. Like everyone just walked in, congratulations, Pastor Dustin, like I had anything to do with the Niners' amazing win last night. Lucky win, if you're not a Niners fan, what people say, but it was probably both. But um, I'm so glad to be here with you guys today. Um, I'm, I'm, it's funny, I'm, I'm excited to talk about what we're going to talk about today, and this is not a topic that gets a lot of people excited, but like I said, I get excited for almost everything. But um, today, we're, we're going to continue with our Genesis excursion back into the beginning, but today we're going to talk about the question, what's my problem? Not personally on me. Don't start shouting things out about me right now. But, but the question for all of us to examine, what's our problem? But before we dive into uh, that question, you can turn your uh, Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to start unpacking what is the problem? What is the big problem we struggle with as, as humans and humanity and with sin? But before we dive in there, um, I do want to say, you know, welcome to our online guests. Glad you're joining us here today. And I want to revisit something I talked about last week because um, I, I, I got a little bit of feedback on it, some good, some kind of, you know what you said? And I just want to clarify uh, my heart behind last week's announcement that I had made. Um, last Sunday, I issued a challenge for all of us. I said, so let's make this year the year where we decide and we, we come and we decide gathering together is so important. And we, we make it a priority to make sure we're together on, on Sundays and when we have prayer nights and small groups. This is a year that we say we're going to gather more than ever together. And I issued a challenge for uh, those of us who watch online. I said, I would love for you to come join us in person. Come here and be with us and see what we're doing. And um, I got some feedback. And what I wanted to clarify is I don't want people to feel angry. I don't want people to feel upset. I don't want people to feel like uh, that, that I'm upset because I'm not. I'm not upset. I just, again, I get real excited about being with people. I, I get my, my blood starts pumping on, on Sunday mornings when I wake up and I'm getting ready because I know I get to go to church and be with people. Um, throughout the week, I'll tell you, some of the, the worst months for me is when the preschool is not meeting here during the summer because I'm in the office by myself. Drives me crazy. When I hear the stomping of the feet and I know there's people around, that gets me happy and going. I know, the, I know what happens when we get together. I know the, the energy that comes. I know that when we gather and we're all celebrating and worshiping, we get to experience what God intended for us in community. So I don't want people to get upset. I just want people to get excited with me. Get excited about what this means to come together. Um, I don't want us to get into a place where we substitute being by ourselves, um, watching something by ourselves, substituting that with gathering together because it's easier, it's convenient, or I know that um, when I talked to some people, they said, um, and we were guilty of this too for a while at, at home, it was like, you know what? I just get to be in my pajamas. I get to be in my jammy jams and drink my coffee or hot chocolate and watch church, and that's great, and I think it's there for a reason, but there's so much more when we're together. And so that was my challenge. I hope you hear my heart. I want to be with you guys. I want to see you guys. I want to do life with you. And I want people to be fully engaged in what this community has to offer. So hear my heart behind it. Um, if you're dealing with an illness or you're at home because you physically can't be here, there, there's a reason that you're at home. That's why we have online. I'm glad you're joining us and our prayers go out to you. Again, I said this um, for the past couple of weeks, but if you look around the room, you'll see a lot of regular people that are normally here are not here today. That's because they're still battling COVID. There, there are people that are still battling illness or dealing with being exposed to it. So pray for our church. Pray for people. If you're online battling with it, uh, we're praying for you. But um, if you're online and um, you're not sick, I'd love to see you. Come join us, and we're going to have a lot of fun together. Let's do life. Let's share. Let's be community. And know that, again, not angry, just excited. Really excited to be with people. So does that make sense for everybody? Awesome. Sweet. Let's pray. 
Uh, God, you are good. I thank you so much for today. I thank you that we get to gather. We get to be with you. We get to celebrate your goodness. Uh, be with you in community. And I pray today as we talk about this question, what's our problem? <laughs> you allow us to unpack this in, in a way that always points us to you and shows us that you are a solution to all of our problems. So God, we thank you. We love you. And everybody said, amen. Now, a number of years ago, I heard this story about someone, and um, I think we can all relate to what he did in this story. Maybe not to the physical act of what he's doing, but to what he does at the end of the story. So have you ever been in a situation where you make a really snap decision, but as soon as you say it, you know that was not the right thing to do? And you wish you could just grab those words as they float out of your mouth and just put them right back in, but it's too late. They're out there. A lot of times, people deal with this on social media. You, you, you type something, you tweet it, you put it online. And even after you've deleted it, what's already happened? It's been retweeted. It's been screenshot. It's, it's out there. You're never getting that back. So, so there, was, there was a man who had a home on an, on an acre lot, and he had his own water well and septic system. And he said um, it was, you know, he loved it. It was great for when it came to his utility bills. He was really self-sufficient on a lot of stuff. But it wasn't so great when his septic line got clogged. And he decided that he, being a do-it-yourselfer, he was going to go and clean and unclog the septic line himself. Famous last words, right? How hard can it be to dig a septic line? So he rented a, a backhoe. He uh, researched the angle that it all needed to be at to make sure everything would flow right, and he's going at it. Um, then, then he got to a point where he was not positive he was doing it the right way. He was thinking, all right, I just want to make sure that I'm doing this right because that could be a really smelly job if you don't do it the right way. So he called a friend. His friend came over, and his friend was impressed, said, this looks great. But then his friend asked a question. He said, hey, I don't see a posted dig permit over here. You did get one before you started this work, didn't you? And actually, the man didn't even know he needed a dig permit, and that was the truth. But that's not what came out of his mouth. Without blinking, without thinking, he looked at him and said, of course I got a dig permit. Uh-oh. Right away, he knew he had done something wrong. After his friend left, he started thinking about what he had just said. Like, why did I say that? Why, why did I do that? I, I know I lied, but why in the moment did I lie? It wasn't even something, may, maybe even, it's just I could have told him, no, I didn't. What do I need to do to make this right? But that wasn't what came out. He lied about it. Why did he lie? You want the truth as to why he lied? The answer is probably the same for most of us in this room as to why we tell a little lie here or there. We may find ourselves doing something similar in a situation where we tell a small, quick lie because we're not perfect and but it's because we're human and we, we're, not, we're not perfect and we, we lie. We, we can be liars, but, but if we go down to the root of why do we lie, sometimes we ask ourselves that. And I'm sure all of us have asked ourselves that at one point. Like, why did I say that? Why did I do that? And you start trying to justify all the, the reasons why you said that one little lie that really wasn't a big deal in the first place. For me, I know one reason I don't lie is uh, the number one reason. I'm really bad at it. I am really bad at it. My face changes. Everyone sees my emotions go. And when I, ever since I was little, my parents, I'd say something. We'd go, Dustin, you're lying. And it was like, I know. It was just breakdown. I, I couldn't, I, I'm not a good liar. And I know that if you tell a lie, what do you have to do continually as you talk about things? You got to keep lying. One of my favorite stories as, uh, as a kid in the book, and even reading this one with my kids from time to time, was the Berenstein Bears and the Bird and the Lamp. 
that, that, that I love the Berenstein Bears. And in this, in this kid's book, the bird comes, they're, they're playing soccer in the house. You know, the rules, don't play the ball in the house. They knock over this, this lamp, shatter it, and they come up with a story of this bird that came in. Well, how did the bird come in? Well, we left the window open. What kind of bird was it? It was blue. No, it was yellow. And just the, the lie gets bigger and bigger until it's just ridiculous and the, the parents know this is not what happened. And the kids have to own up to it. But I love that story because it talks about how much we have to lie to cover a lie and how ridiculous it is sometimes when we get caught in just a real little thing that could be so much better if we just told the truth. But a lot of it comes down to pride. We lie because our pride can be challenged. We lie to cover up failures, to save face, to not be embarrassed, to pass the blame. And none of these are really good reasons either. They're, They're all focused on us, right? They get us looking at ourselves. But pride is a big issue of why we just decide sometimes we are not going to tell the truth. The fact that, you know, I have a few failures does not mean I'm a good person, but I can give a false impression if I lie about it sometimes. We all battle this question. So ask this about ourselves. Are we good? Are we good at covering things up? Are we good at just in the moment making something seem not as big as it needs to be? Now, I know that in in these moments where for me personally, when you have this, this momentary lapse of, all right, am I going to do what's right? Am I going to do what's wrong? You really quickly have to start doing a self-evaluation. But you're undeniably, you're confronted with your sin nature. You're confronted with it. What are you going to do in this moment? And often we find ourselves making the quick, easy, wrong decision. And then we can ask ourselves what this man asked himself. You walk away and you go, what's my problem? Why did I do this? What is my problem? It's so much easier to ask the question to somebody else. It's so much easier to go to someone and say, hey, what is your problem? What is your problem? What's your deal? Why did you do that? What's wrong with you? I can ask that to my kids often at home. Say, Aurora, Avery, why didn't you listen to what I said? Well, because of this or because of that, and I wanted to play with the toys. Like, gosh, what's your problem? Just do what I say. But it's harder to ask, what's my problem? What is my problem in this situation? But, you know, sometimes I've got to understand, it's not them, sometimes it's me. And not just with kids, but just in general in life. It's easy to look at someone and say, what's your problem? But it's, it's harder to put it back on yourself and say, it's got to be me. And that can be a tough pill to swallow when you're living the dream, being the perfect husband and perfect dad, right? Really hard to own up to that sometimes. But you've got to ask yourself, what's my problem? What is our problem? And I think when we start shifting it around that way, when we change it from looking out and saying, what's their problem? When we cause ourselves to look in and take that actual genuine focus, say, let me switch this around, it changes a shift in our, it makes a shift in our thinking, and it's a good shift. I think a question we could ask instead of what's our problem is, why does our pride get the best of us more often than we want it to? Why does our pride get the, mes- the best of us more often than we want it to? So let's start with our problem. I think our number one problem that causes us to to fall into this, and we're going to unpack this in Genesis 3, is pride. It's my problem. It's our problem. It's humanity's problem. It's a universal problem. And I think pride is a foundational problem that leads to so many other things that play into our sin nature. This is a universal human experience, and it goes all the way back to our parents. Not just your immediate parents, but all the way back, like Genesis, Adam, and Eve parents. This goes all the way back to them because they struggled with this too in the moment. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 3, we find ourselves in a garden. Right? Adam and Eve are in the garden, and this is literally paradise. The best situation anyone could hope for. Food is provided. Life is provided. They get to go for walks with God in the cool of the day. This is amazing. It does not get better than life in the garden. They were naked and unashamed. It didn't matter. There was, no, there was not sexism. There wasn't racism. 
There wasn't greed. There wasn't poverty. There was not masks or no masks. There was not left or right. There was not violence or sickness. Everything was amazing, but that changed in an instant. See, Eve finds herself at the base of a tree, and not just any tree. She finds herself one day at the tree. This is the tree that God said, do not eat from this tree. The one thing God says, this is your rule here, don't eat from this. She finds herself there. We refer to it as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this was a simple test of fidelity. Would Adam and Eve trust God as their loving father and go forward with him, or would they take matters into their own hands? Would they allow him to provide, or would they go for their instincts instead? Would they let God be God, or would they start what was eventually referred to as a mutiny against his throne? And it can be referred to as something that simple. Sin is sin. We've heard that phrase before, right? Sin is sin. But sometimes people say sin is simple. Sin is simple. You knew it was right. You knew it was wrong. You chose to do one or the other. Sin can be simple, but yet we complicate it sometimes. We complicate it through justifications, through our actions, and we're going to see how Eve did that as well here. Not just Eve, but Adam is being there as well. Sometimes we, we start justifying our sin. You guys ever find yourselves doing that? You do something wrong and you go, oh, but this is why. This is why I did it. This, is, this, is, this makes sense. I still find myself doing that sometimes. But we start saying, we can be even creative with it. We can say, yeah, but they did this first. Yeah, but I only did that because this person said this. Oh, my situation made me have to change the rules a little bit. And we justify things. We can be immensely creative in justifying our sin, can't we? We use that gift God gave us of creativity and we totally use it for the wrong reason. But it all comes down to a simple reality. A lot of people don't want anyone or anything, including God, telling us what to do. A lot of people don't want anyone or anything, including God, telling us what to do. What's the famous schoolyard line that we hear kids say all the time, or maybe when you have a family member come over, or even when their brothers or sisters say something that they want them to do? What is the famous line? You are not the boss of me. You are not the boss of me. In fact, we actually say it to our kids sometimes. One of our kids will start tallying on the other. We go, hey, who are you in charge of? myself, right, you're not the boss of these other people. But we, we start saying that. You say, you are not the boss of me. And the problem is, we actually say that to God, I think, more often than we know. When it comes down to us sinning, we're actually using this phrase with God. We tell our kids sometimes, like I said, they're not the boss of each other, but when we're doing this with our sin, we're referring to God. And he really is the boss. So when you say, you're not the boss of me, he really is the boss of you. There's no other simple way to say that, right? He is large, he is in charge, he is the man. But pride, this sin of pride, it really causes us to lose focus of who the boss really is. It causes us to lose focus of this loving boss, not this dictator who's out to punish you, but this boss who loves you and wants the best and wants you to thrive and succeed. We lose sight of that. We lose sight that he is our go-to. Man, sin is the moment when we do this, it's kind of like when we go rogue, when we say, hey, can you imagine going to work and your boss saying, hey, here's what I want for you. You go, you're not the boss of me, and you walk away. Oh, boy. You're in for a long day or no more days <laughs> at that place, right? I love that our boss doesn't do that for us. Even in that moment where we go rogue, we become the boss of ourselves for that moment. We, we, we turn it into an out-focus, into a me-focus. That's what sin really does. That's why we're using pride as a good analogy for it. It's all about me. It's all about what I'm going to do. I am my own boss. I get to justify my action. But we have to remember that we have the perfect boss. We have the perfect boss who wants us to thrive and succeed in what he has planned for us. Not what the world has planned, not what we have planned, but what he has, he is the perfect 
boss. So Genesis 3.1, let's start reading here and see what happens with Adam and Eve. So Genesis 3.1 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now we all know the definitive answer to that, right? Did God say don't eat of any tree? No, he didn't say that. God said don't eat of that tree, right? God said they could eat of all the trees minus one. You can eat of all the trees minus one. And even Eve knew the right answer. She responds in verse two. She says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree, we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden. And she was exactly right, right? What she said next, however, was partially wrong. She, she kind of added something to what God said. In Genesis 3, 3, this is her response still. She says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, this was a very simple addition right there, right? It says, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And that was something Eve added. This was her interpretation of God's command. And it was actually a lot more stringent than what God had actually said. Did God say, don't touch it or you'll die? He didn't say that. He said, don't eat this. So, so why would Eve add this line? Why, why would Eve come in and, and add a rule to God's rules? Now, obviously, we don't know for sure, but I do know that we often do the same thing. Sometimes it's for good, and sometimes it's not so good, and we're going to unpack a little bit of both of those. Sometimes we add extra rules because sometimes we don't trust ourselves with things, and that's okay. Sometimes we don't trust ourselves, and that's okay, so we add extra rules. For example, Scripture talks a lot about um, drunkenness. Talks a lot about how drunkenness is wrong, don't get drunk. So there are some people that will say, because drunkenness is bad, I will not touch alcohol in any way, shape, or form. And for them, that is a good decision. For those people that say, I'm going to abstain, or maybe people have struggled with it in the past, and they've struggled with drunkenness, so they know as a rule for themselves now, they will not drink. They add another line to the, the not getting drunk, and that's not bad, it's not wrong. They're doing something to keep themselves in check from crossing a line they don't want to cross. Scripture talks about sex before marriage being wrong, fornication being wrong. So some people will go an extra step and say, I'm not going to watch this style movie, or I'm not even going to watch, I'm not even going to dance or watch a certain kind of dancing, because I know for me that gets me going down this path where I think I'm going to mess up. So they add rules into it. There are some churches that enforce rules like that. And for those churches and those people, that's not a bad thing. Sometimes people need this extra little step to make sure that they are going in track. Sometimes watching certain movies can make you start thinking worse things, don't change your language. The things we listen to can start making what comes into our head come out of our mouths. And so people will add a layer of, you know what, I'm not going to do this because it's an extra layer of protection. Sometimes it's a good thing. Some people struggle with, like I said, foul language. And I actually knew a family where one day I said, oh, shoot. And I could see the mom, dad, and a couple of the kids go, <gasps> and I was like, I said, shoot. And they were like, I, I know. In their house, that was a bad word. Because for them, they had issues with swearing growing up. So they took away all even substitutes for swear words. They just didn't say it at all. And I was thinking, what am I supposed to say then? And they told me, they said, because shoot sounds like you can finish the rest on your own. So I decided, all right, I can't say that. What if I just, something happens and I say, oh, poop instead. I think it's kind of funny, right, if you, if you shout that out. And I was like, it's not a cuss word, but it feels good saying it. It makes me laugh, makes other people laugh. My daughter Avery is obsessed with the word poop right now. We're singing songs, and she throws the word poop into almost every other word or the last word of every song. It's, it's, it's hilarious. And at the same time, part of me wants to tell her, stop doing that. But the other part is like, how long will this go for? Someone told me recently it may never stop. I'm like, okay, well, 
at least for 18 years, I'll have to deal with it, and then someone else's job, right? But, you know, it's not a cuss word. It can make you feel good saying it, doing a substitution like that. Makes us laugh. It's the satisfaction without the guilt. It's like going on a, a sugar-free diet but drinking diet soda instead, right? You're still substituting it. That's something I got called out for recently. We were fasting from sugar in our house, and my wife lovingly told me, but you're drinking a diet soda. I was like, it says zero sugar on the can. All, I'm still following the rules, and I'm guilt-free. In all reality, it's not guilt-free because I'm totally breaking the rules. Maybe you didn't grow up like that. Maybe you didn't grow up adding extra rules, but a lot of people did. Or maybe some people in here did, people you know did. And understand, some rules can be really silly to us, but make perfect sense for somebody else, and that's okay. We may say that's extreme, and we can all agree that, you know what, it is extreme. But we can also see that it comes from a good place. These rules can come from a good place, even if they are extreme. I think when we go through Scripture and we understand God's rules for us, we need to understand that the rules are designed to help us follow God when we don't allow, we don't trust ourselves to touch, as Eve said. The rules are designed to help us follow God when we don't trust ourselves to touch. But there is another motive, I think, a not-so-good motive with it. It's a bit more corrupt. Sometimes we add extra rules or we start changing or altering the rules because our mindset goes to this. If, I can make God, if God's commands seem overbearing, stifling, or out of touch or too hard, I can justify why I break them. If I can make God's commands seem overbearing, stifling, out of touch, or too hard, then I can justify why I break them. And I think this is something we do as people all the time. Not just God's rules, but just rules in general. How many times have we heard a rule that says, that does not make sense, I will not do it? No way, that's too overbearing, I will not follow that rule. I think more so in the past couple of years than anything else, right? We, th these rules come and we're just like, man, I don't want to follow that, that's overbearing, I will not do it. The problem is, when we go down this road, especially with God's rules, we say, you know what, God has these rules, but that seems extreme, I don't know if I can do that. We start justifying what we do. We start justifying our sin and brokenness instead of giving our sin and brokenness to the one who redeems us in the process. The one who actually dealt with it. The one who actually said, I'm going to take your sin. I'm going to break so you don't break. We justify why we want to break instead. When we go down this road, we have a mentality that now says, this is not my fault. This is God's fault. And that is a scary line to walk. When we say, this is no longer my fault, this is God's fault. His rules are too restrictive. He's put too much extremes or expectations on us. For example, why wait to be married? Why wait until I'm married? When I was a youth pastor, I had this talk with students all the time, and that question came up. Why wait? Nobody waits anymore. Why do we have to do it? That is too extreme. Nobody lives like that. And then as we get older and we start getting income, then it turns into, is tithing real? Is this really important, tithe? I mean... I can't even afford my own debt. Now I have to, now I have to give money away to church or, or to give money to God. Nobody really does that anymore. Why would I do that? We start justifying rules that we think are extreme. Church every Sunday? Are you kidding me? Every single week and on worship nights, sometimes twice a week? Oh, too extreme. I can't give that up to God. Why can't I just go do church by myself? I'm going to go on a walk, be in nature, church alone. Sometimes you may even think, you know, I pray better by myself anyways. I don't want to pray with people. People judge me when I pray. Maybe you think it's too extreme, but we start doing that to justify, you know what, this is, this is not my fault, this is God's fault, you've made it too hard, instead of understanding that his rules really are there so we can succeed. His rules are there so we can thrive, so we can learn to trust and grow in him in the process. When we ask these questions, though, when we start justifying our sin the way we're going to see Eve do it in a second, we ask these questions, and it puts us back into a me mentality. 
puts all the focus back on me, all the focus back on us. What are we going to do about it? What is best for us in our minds? We made everything about following us instead of everything about following him. We make it about our preferences. We make it about our desires. And friends, when we go back to the me mentality instead of the we mentality, we are taking ourselves out of that communal nature with God, as we talked about last week, what he created us to be in. He created us to be in community with each other. He created us to be in community with him. But when we choose this, we justify our actions, we're actually saying, God, my way is better. I don't need you in this part. I have got this on my own. Once we cross the line, we often have the ready-made excuse. I can justify my past. I can justify my decisions. I can enjoy my pleasure, even if it's only temporary, because I know what's best. But even in that moment, often we know we made the wrong decision. Right then and there, we know we crossed the line that we shouldn't have crossed. We can't miss what happens next with Adam and Eve here. It's a really telling act, I think, for this question. What's our problem? Why do we do what we do? In chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, the conversation between the serpent and Eve continues. It says this, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Like what, what the devil is saying here. He's saying that God is a cosmic killjoy. And God is just a guy that's out to get you and ruin all your life, ruin your fun, right? What a bummer it is to follow this guy. He doesn't want you to be like him. I mean, who does that? And he, he's saying, you could be like God. Just go for it. I think this is, this is kind of the, the choral refrain of our culture, isn't it? Often culture tells you, you are your own God, especially Western civilization where we are now. You are complicit in providing a ready-made excuse for everything because you are in charge. You do what's best. You do what makes you feel happy, what makes you feel good. You do it. Determine your own destiny. You are your own God. That's what society will say. And look what Eve does here in chapter 3, verse 6. Eve examines the fruit. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. We get some observations with Eve right here and we're gonna talk about Adam in a second too because that guy was right there the whole time. He didn't say anything. But there's three observations Eve makes in this passage about this fruit. One, the fruit was good for food. Very true. The fruit was good for food. The second one she sees, it was a delight to the eyes. Not only was the fruit good for food, but it looked good. It was, when just looking at this, there was a desire to know more about it, a desire to go for it. And three, her observation was, it was a desirable to make one wise. You know what's crazy about all three of these things? These don't seem wrong. These are all true, right? This is, but the thing is, this is true of all temptation. If you didn't want to do it, it wouldn't be tempting, right? So temptation has a way of saying this is good. You're going to be passionate about this. You want this. It's going to be better for you. That's what temptation does. But this is an adequate summary of almost everything that seduces us away from God, whether it's greed, lust, pride, ambition, our own selfishness, whatever your, your pet sin or your pet vice happens to be, it probably does all of this for you when you look at it, even though it's not what God wants for you. If we look at towards the end of the Bible, there's a passage in 1 John 2.16. It says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. So there, there are three possible seductions that come from this that we learn from Eve and we learn from this passage in um, 1 John. It says this, We have a pride of passion. 
That's really a lust of your flesh. What does your flesh want? What is your flesh gonna do? What's our problem? We live to satisfy our flesh. Then there's a pride of possession, the lust of the eyes. We wanna look at things that, that maybe not even be the best for us, but we have a desire to look. We have a desire to lust after things. And then there's the pride of position. And this is just the boastful pride of life, the desire to be at the top, the desire to be the best, have people acknowledge who you are, where you're at, what you're doing, what you've accomplished. And we see these three things with Eve. We see the pride of passion with her food. When it says it's a delight to the eyes, that's the pride of possession. She saw something. She saw something good and she wanted it. She wanted it for herself. The, the desirable to make one wise, this was the pride of position. She wanted to be elevated above what her status was, what God had determined for her to be. She wanted to get more. She wanted to get better. Now, your particular temptation or, or sin or whatever you struggle with may be different from me, but, but I think in the same way, it all boils down to one of these three things, and there's a pride underlying factor of us wanting to be in control, wanting to make that decision, wanting to do what we want in, the, in that moment. Sometimes I know that I can know best on a certain topic. I know that I know best. And I don't want to discuss the other point of view. Just don't want to do it. I know that I know best. Don't talk to me about it. I know everything there is to know, right? But then you've got to put yourself in check. Then you've got to start learning some humility and know, okay, even if I do know best, or I think I know best, that doesn't mean I can't talk with someone else about it. Doesn't mean I'm above hearing where they're coming from. Doesn't mean I'm above learning something new. Sometimes I want to be self-determined. Sometimes I do want to be my own God, but then sometimes in those moments, we have to relearn humility. We have to relearn what it takes to put that pride aside and know that God comes to us, and Jesus came to us with all humility, and he was the ultimate example of us wanting to learn and be humble. When we recognize this, this can be so insightful. It can revolutionize the way you change and evaluate these moments. I know that for a lot of us, the minute we walk out these doors could be an opportunity to give in to one of these. But if we start looking at it from this, say, all right, how can, I, how can I relearn humility in this situation? It can revolutionize our walk with God. It can revolutionize our walk with each other when we come at it from a humble standpoint. And this wasn't just true of us. This isn't just true of Eve. These temptations were true of Jesus himself. When Satan came at Jesus in the wilderness, he pulled out some tricks. And you know what? He pulled out three tricks, and they were the same three tricks that he pulled on Eve. When, he, when Jesus was tempted, the devil said, turn this stone into bread. He goes right back to the first thing he said with Eve, right? Look at this food. You want it. You know you want it. It's the first thing he comes at Jesus with. Look at this food. You know you want it. You know you want this. That was the pride of passion. Man, when you get hungry, you get passionate about eating some food. Jesus was hungry, and the devil knew it. He came at him and said, Let's, let me try and get you and fall in this pride of passion. Get this food. Jesus didn't do it. And then he showed off, he said, you know what, Jesus, why don't you just bow down to me? Look at, look at everything here. He said, you can, you can have all of this, the empires of the world. Look at everything here. I can give it to you. He was giving Jesus the pride of possession. You want all this, Jesus? I'll give it to you. You can have everything. He came after Jesus with that pride of possession. Jesus says no. And then he says, throw yourself off the temple. Throw off, let the angels catch you. This was the pride of position. This is in let the world know exactly who you are right now. The angels will catch you. There will be no doubt. You will be immediately the man in charge of everything. Everyone knows it. It's kind of what we said we struggle with, right? The pride of position. Satan hit Jesus with the same temptations he hit Eve with. Passion, possession, and position. 
<clears throat> and they all have their base in pride. Notice what captured Eve, though. It said she wanted to be like God. That was the thing. When it says she wanted to be like God, so she took the food and she took a bite. And Adam, standing there just going, what? Who? What's going on? As a lot of us husbands do sometimes. He went for it. And she gave him the food, and she, he ate and fell right into the same temptation and came right into the same sin that she did. And unfortunately, they both got what they wanted. They both got exactly what they wanted in that moment. It says that when they ate that fruit, their eyes were opened. They were keenly aware of both good and evil. They knew they were naked and they were ashamed. They, they lacked what they wanted. This reminds me of the, the old phrase, be careful of what you wish for. You just might get it. Well, Satan told them you were gonna, they were going to know right from wrong, and they got it. Unfortunately, they knew they were wrong. So many of us, again, we find ourselves in this predicament. We want independence, and when we get it, we're finally free. We're on our own. We are in charge. Uh-oh. Life hits, struggles hits, sin hits. We want to make a way to leave our home only to find ourselves isolated. Or we say, you know what, I can't wait to be away from family members. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves maybe missing those family members. We can't wait for that independence until independence takes us down the wrong road. I've talked with uh, many people who in marriages, they say, yeah, yeah, we're married, but you know what we're going to do? We're going to have separate bank accounts. We're going to have, uh, we're going to do separate relationships. And we're, we're going to do a lot of things separate. And, and they're missing a point of that community God called them to be. And they start saying, I want so much independence that I'm ultimately making myself independent from what God has called me to be. I don't want to be that. I want to be, I don't want to be incapable of I don't want to be capable of pulling myself away from God, and I know that God pursues, and God grabs and grab holds, but I don't want to be the person that pulls myself further what he's got for me. I don't want to be the divine agent of my own life. I want to acknowledge God as being, he is the divinity over my life. Satan has this strategy. He pulled the fast one. So he did it then, and he does it today. What is Satan's strategy to get us to, to sin? We know, we know how he says these things. We know the three temptations, right? Passion, possession, and position. But he actually has a pretty clever method. When I was doing children's ministry, one of the kids asked me, they said, is Satan dumb? And I was like, actually, guys, he's not. He is very crafty. He knows what he's doing. And then they asked, does he know he loses in the end? I was like, that one I actually don't know if he knows he loses because he's trying really hard to win this thing. But he's not dumb about what he does to each and every one of us. He wasn't dumb at the way he came about it with Eve. Even though Jesus didn't give in, he was not dumb at the way he came at Jesus. He hit him when he was hungry. He hit him at a low point. He's good at what he does. But Satan has a strategy, and this is one of the things he does. Satan will try to turn the blessing of God into a burden. Satan will try to turn the blessing of God into a burden. God gave a garden. You know what Satan told Adam and Eve? God really has you in this prison. He doesn't want you to be like him. He's got you right where he wants you. This is not paradise. This is prison. God's keeping something from you. As a matter of fact, God's keeping everything from you. You don't even know until you do this. What was an ultimate perfect blessing? This was paradise Satan distorted in their minds and made them feel like this was not good. She correctly said, God gave us this tree except the one. However, when she says that next, she exaggerates the restriction. She says, not only are we able to eat the fruit, we're not supposed to touch it, but God never said that. And Satan knew it, and he planted that seed into her mind. He planted that seed in and said, I'm going to have some doubts grow now. These, these roots are going to start going through your mind, and you're going to compromise this because I've got you. She doubted the goodness of God. She started questioning whether God really did have her best interest in mind. Is he really giving me a paradise, or does he really not want me to be like him? I'm going to eat the fruit. 
He made the blessing turn into a burden. How many times have we turned God's gifts into obligations? How many times have we looked at something that is a total blessing and instead said, now I'm obligated to do it instead? And we start taking the joy out of what God has really called us to have fun with, right? I know that when we look at the Bible, I talk about how important it is to read the Bible. I know that, what's the date today? We're on the, the 23rd. Today I'm going to do day 23 of the reading plan for the Bible in a year, and I'm loving doing it. I'm loving every day looking at the different passages, and right now we're doing Jacob and Esau, if you're following along in the year plan, and it is so fun to read through. But how often do I all of a sudden, me personally, and maybe some of us do this as well, we look at, oh man, i got to read my Bible, instead of saying, this is a blessing that we have this book. This is amazing that we have the guidelines for our life in our hands. How often do we look at it and go, gosh, I've got to read this today. Oh, no. And we start becoming our own killjoy of what was a blessing. We turn it into an obligation instead. Sometimes we'll look at baptism as we, instead of saying, we look at it as a command to be obeyed instead of saying, man, this is something that God says do it and we get to rejoice and celebrate instead. I don't want to look at God's gifts as obligations. I want to look at his gifts as blessings. I want to I know that when I come here on Sunday, I'm not coming here out of an obligation. I don't choose to go to church out of a I have to go or else. We, it is a blessing that we get to meet together. Not every country gets to do this. Not every city gets to do this. We get to come together. This is a blessing. And I don't ever want us to feel like, man, if I don't go, I'm going to get in trouble. No. I want it to be, I get to go because I'm going to be filled for my week. I get to go because this is what's going to fill me up. And I'm going to go through Monday through Saturday. And man, life is going to throw some haymakers at me. But the fellowship and community I have and I built on Sunday is going to carry me through this. That's what I want it to be. Satan is effective at getting us to distort the blessings and turning them into burdens. Another thing Satan does, he will tell half-truths that become full-blown deception. He will tell half-truths that become full-blown deception. Now, Satan seldom outright lies. Like, we're too clever for just a bold lie that we're going to buy into. Rather than saying to Eve, he didn't go up to her and say, there will be zero consequences for eating the fruit, don't worry about it, nothing's going to happen, you're fine. He didn't say that to her because she could have easily said, no, God clearly said something was wrong. Like, I don't want to do that. But he doesn't give her a bold-faced lie. He tells her a lot of truth and throws a little bit of lie into it. And when he does that, he gets her to buy into the bigger lie. He doesn't say there's no consequences. He says, no, you're not going to die. And in fact, she didn't die. Not that day anyways. But he was right. You're not going to drop dead by taking a bite of that. But he has a way of hiding the price tag for our sin. He has a way of saying, it's not that big a deal. It's all good. Go for it. You'll be okay. And this is why. Because he'll throw truth in there. But he's hiding the price tag of what's going to cost you. Adam and Eve didn't know that it was going to cost them the garden. Satan hid that from them. Satan, only after we give in to these things, do you start realizing the price tags that come with it. There was a prominent pastor who I followed for many, many years, read lots of his books, and was just all about the thing, lessons he had to, to teach. And I watched videos of him and, and watched some of his sermons. And this was one of, one of, my, one of my pastoral mentors, in a sense. You know, never met him personally, but I loved what this man did. Turned out that he was living a double life. Had multiple affairs and multiple allegations with other women, and then one day he got caught. I don't know what little lies he was buying into, but only then did the price tag start to reveal. Once it came out, the price tag came. First, it cost him his church. Then the next price tag was his wife. Then the next price tag was his kids. 
And then the next price tag was his alma mater Bible college totally disassociated themselves with him, said, we can't be associated if this is the life you're living. Still to this day, he has not recovered everything as far as not just economically, but even just stature-wise where he was and the people he was leading because of the sin that he had given himself into. One by one, the price tags were revealed. Ministry, health, friendships, things crashed and burned beneath his feet. He's still not back to where he was. Maybe you know someone, maybe you have your own story where you know, hey, I did this. This was my compromising moment where this was the half-truth, I believe. This was the little lie I let come in and it turned into something that cost you way more than you wanted to pay in the first place. But that's how Satan works. He starts saying, here's some truth. Here's a little lie in there, just enough to get you to justify what we're gonna do. But the price is always more than we wanna pay. The third thing he'll do, he'll promise the seductive lie that you can be your own God. He'll promise a seductive lie that you can be your own God. And don't deny it, this is seductive. Who doesn't want to be in charge of their own life? Who doesn't want to say that phrase, you're not the boss of me, I'm the boss of me. I get to make the decisions. You know, one of my favorite lines that I like to quote whenever something happens where I'm in charge is from the movie Captain Phillips where the, the pirate says, I am the captain now. I love that line because I think so many of us use that line in our lives, not word for word like we're watching the movie, but in our minds we justify it. We say, I am the captain now. I'm going to do this. You know what? I know what's best for me. Each of us was made in the image of God. Enough, we have enough of his nature that, to know that, that there is a desire to be worshipped. A lot of people like being worshipped. A lot of people like the acknowledgement. And there, there is a, such a thing as being addicted to affirmation. You are so addicted to what the world thinks of you that that's what you strive for. You determine to be your own. But when we determine to be our own, that pride, that desire pulls us away from what God has called us to be. We live in the shadow of the breach of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and not embracing the rules that God has given us to keep us safe in the first place. Satan comes at us with these three things, but I love that that's not the end. We have God's solution. I love that God is not a God that you can mess with. God is not a God you can mess with. There are many people all throughout scripture that try to mess with God, and um, spoiler alert, it never works for them. It never once works. No one ever gets the best of God. And when it comes to our fall, in our sin nature, when we come all the way back to the base of Adam and Eve, knowing when the first fall was and that we still fall today, God gave us a solution. Adam and Eve, if you read through on verse 8, it says that they ran. They tried to hide from God. Our instinct when we sin, our instinct when we get caught, typically is to hide and run and shelter ourselves from what's going on. But I love that when they ran and hid, God was pursuing them instead. Their impulse was to hide God's initial impulse. When the very first sin happened, his initial impulse was to seek and save the lost. There was no hesitation. There was no, oh man, what have I done with my creation? What are they doing? They're rebelling. Immediately, they eat the food. They run and they hide. And what is God doing? Come out. I want to be with you. I'm coming for you. This is our God. Part of the reconciliation process is, is the appro appropriate consequences, right? There, there's punishment and discipline, and, and every parent knows this. There are no consequences for action. And uh, there's often as parents, when we give consequences out, we do it out of love. We want our kids to learn. We want them to grow and understand right from wrong. God had to respond. He couldn't just sit back and go, oh, well, they blew it. On to the next one. <laughs> he had to respond. This was his creation. We talked about how much of his creation, if you create it, a couple weeks ago we talked about when being made in the image of God, when we are created, God literally has his fingerprints on us. He loves us too much to watch us sit back, so he had to come at us. He had to come to us. 
He had to be hands-on with his approach. Theologians have called this part of the passage the curse because there was a consequence for their actions. For Adam, it said that he would earn a living from the sweat of his brow. He would have to work and work hard for the ground to produce food. If you want to make a living now, Adam, you've got to work for it. How many people here can relate to that? You want to make a living now? You've got to work for it. It's not just given to you. For Eve, one of the big ones that we focus on, it included pain in childbirth. How many ladies here can relate to that? There were consequences for actions, right? We can relate to consequences. And the fact is, we still live under this curse. But understand this. God did not curse us. He did not curse Adam and Eve. There are two things God cursed in this passage. He cursed the serpent, and he cursed the ground. At no point did he say, curses to you, Adam, curses to you, Eve. He cursed other things, things that are affecting us, but he never cursed us. Through all of this, he redeems us. He disciplined them. There's a difference between discipline and punishment, though. I know when, when I was learning about the, the difference between discipline and punishment, it's, it's really crazy when you think about it. One of them comes with learning. One comes with a lesson. One comes with redemption, and the other seeks to intentionally cause pain with no chance to learn. It simply is hurt paying for hurt. This is redemption versus revenge. I love that God doesn't look at us when you do something wrong, say, I am punishing you. He does say, there's some discipline. There's consequences. God wants us to learn. God wants us to grow. He wouldn't have sent Jesus to redeem us if he wanted anything else. Our struggles and pains in this world, this is a part of God's strategy that draws us to him. The other part of the strategy is forecast in Genesis 3.15. He says this after all this now is happening. There's curses to the ground, curses to the serpent, but God says this to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This veiled prophecy ultimately was pointing towards the cross. There were things that were going to hurt us and there was going to be something to redeem us. Satan would strike, but that strike was going to cause his demise. So where does that leave us today? We, we have this pride, we have this sin, we, we have this, this nature, this desire to be our own gods. What does it do today? What's, the, what's our response to the question, what's our problem? What's our problem with sin? Why do we do this? I think to answer that question, we need to understand this. Understand that our problem, understand that the fall is not the end of the story. As a matter of fact, it's quite different. Genesis is the beginning of the book. The fall is in the beginning of the story. But I love that the fall, this is the beginning of the redemption story of Jesus. You can look at scripture in a couple different ways. You can look at it and say the, the, begin, the scripture starts in Genesis 1 and ultimately it's God being ticked off at the world for what we've done. Or we can say Genesis 1, we see creation. In Genesis 3, we see God's love really start to show. We can look at the Bible as a revenge book or we can look at it as the greatest love story ever written, the greatest redemption story ever written. No one else can love like he does. No one else can offer the peace that he does. There is no one else that can redeem the way he does. Maybe you can recognize yourself in this story, but maybe you haven't recognized God yet in your story. Today, I want to engage you and I want to offer up that that, that request or that the conversation, if you've never requested God to be a part of your story, don't leave your day without doing it. Second Peter 3.9 says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I love that word. He wants everyone to come. No one is too far gone. No one's sin, no one's fall, no one's pride is so far gone that God doesn't want you to come back. 
that God doesn't want you to, to come to him and say, I want you to be my God. And he goes, I'm already here. You're my child. I love you. I've redeemed you. I already sent my son for you. This is an incredible story. Jesus on the cross is an incredible story. I love that this passage in Peter doesn't talk about just God's desire for some. It is for everyone and that he is so patient. Some of us struggle with patience, but I love that God is patient with everyone. And if you think over the course of history, how long earth has been around and how many billions of people God's had to work with, that's an incredible amount of patience. Some of us say we have one kid and my patience is done. That's it. God's got billions and he's patient with every single one of us. He wants us to come to him. When we look through the history of humanity, starting with Adam and go through all of scripture to get where we are today, the patience and the love of God seems totally unreal. It doesn't make sense. Grace doesn't make sense. But despite our faults, despite our failures, despite that we're going to continue to have faults, even despite the fact that we've got problems, we've got big problems, we've got sin problems, God is there through the whole thing. He wants to be a part. He already paid the price to take those sins away. So when we say, what's my problem? We don't get to stop there. We say, what's my problem? It's this. Oh, I have the solution. And that's Jesus. Will you all stand with me? I'd like to invite the worship team up this morning as we come to a close. Know that uh, we're going to continue to have faults. Going to continue to fall. Going to continue to mess up. But God's love story never ends. We have an incredible, we get to experience the incredible love that will never end. And it has no ending in sight. There are no faults. There's no stop to what he won't do to reach you. If you've, again, if you've never made this commitment to God, I want to invite you to come talk to me after church at some point. Shoot me an email. Give me a phone call. If you're online right now watching, there's a button that says, uh, I need prayer. If maybe this is stirring in your heart right now, and you want to say, hey, I want to talk to somebody more about this. I don't know if I'm ready to make the decision, but I at least want to talk about it. Click that button. We have people standing by that would love to talk with you about it, that would love to pray with you about it. Or if you just shoot me an email as well, Dustin at ccpualp.com. I'd love to talk to you. Let's talk about how this life is so amazing with Jesus. How the fall is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of God's love story. So what's our problem? We're human. We're imperfect. We have pride. We sin. We mess up. And we do it again and again. What's the solution? God's love. Perfect, undeniable, humble, sacrificial, amazing love. We all got problems, but we all have him. He is our answer. God, you are so good. I thank you that, uh, that when we fell back then and we fall still today, that you are not a God that pushes us aside. You're not a God that says you fall too much, now you're on your own. You're a God that says, let me help you up. Let me help you not fall. Let me be here anytime you need. God, I pray that that love is something we grasp onto each and every day, something we hold onto, something we never push away, but something we run towards, God, your unfailing and everlasting love. God, I pray we reside in that. And I pray that we just have an amazing time understanding and being held by you in our hardest times. We thank you, God. We love you. And everybody said, amen.